0: Today is Thursday, October 24th. A little girl is stuck in Africa. It's now considered racist and bigoted to believe in borders. And Canadian government uses environmentalism lies to take more of our money. All over the news right now is the topic of bombs being sent to Democrats, and I'm not going to talk about that for one reason. We don't know yet what's happening. We don't know who did it, so we don't know the motive or the inspiration. Both the left and the right seem to think they know the motive and the inspiration, but if you don't know who did it, then that's impossible. But I think we can all agree it's terrible. If they're real bombs, that's terrible. And if it's some kind of a crazy hoax, that's terrible as well. How about this? Let's just not send bombs to each other. All right, before we jump into today's topics, I have to tell you about something very disturbing that I found. A few days ago, I saw on social media a woman had gotten a tattoo of a hanger as a way to support the right to have an abortion. So I thought, wow, that is one crazy woman. But this morning I was on Twitter and apparently this is a thing now. Women are getting hanger tattoos on them and posting it on social media. It's not just one woman. It's like a trend now or something. This is so disturbing. This comes from this myth. And yes, I said a myth. That women were getting themselves abortions with hangers before abortion became legal. Now, back alley abortions did not actually happen in back alleys. The doors to the clinics were in the back alleys. And there was no formal advertising for them. But do you know what happened to these back-alley abortion clinics when abortion became legal? They got front doors and they started advertising. The exact same clinics, the exact same doctors, just simply let people start using the front door. And they could hang a sign out front letting people know what they do. No, women did not stick hangers inside of themselves and stab babies to death. But what is that hanger saying? They're saying, if you don't let us kill our babies in a clinic, then we're going to stick hangers inside ourselves and stab our babies to death. Getting a tattoo of this is extremely gross. It's like getting a tattoo of a guillotine. But that's our culture today. There is a positive way to look at this, believe it or not. Talking about abortion used to be taboo. It was considered rude. So most Christians didn't talk about it. I've never really been one to shy away from a taboo topic, but I found when I talked about abortion, I was usually met with shocked faces. That's just not what a proper young woman talks about. Today, that shocked face isn't there. People are more than willing to jump into a conversation about abortion. But that means you have to be prepared for these conversations to get some ideas of how to answer questions like, What about the case of rape? Or what if the baby has disabilities? What if the mother's life is at risk? Are you trying to force your religion on me? And a whole bunch more. You can find answers to those questions on my website, lauraleesiemens.com. And you can go to the video section and check out my video series, The Abortion Debate. We also have the video series there, The Euthanasia Debate, which is also a hot topic right now. Also, I would love to come and speak to your group about this and give you practical ways to have these conversations. We want to make sure we are leaving our friends and our families with things to think about without just getting into a huge yelling match or a fight. And I can help you with that. One of the things I hear all the time, and you've probably heard this as well, pro-life only care about the fetus until it's born, and they just don't care about babies after the born. This is just not true. Whenever I speak at adoption events, there are many, many Christians and many pro-life people there. In fact, just two nights ago, I spoke at a training session for new foster and adoptive parents. And after I spoke, I had a number of Christians come up and talk to me. Adoption is part of the pro-life message. And in keeping with that, you want to make sure you are aware of a special Sunday called Orphan Sunday. Orphan Sunday. It's always the second Sunday in November, and that means this year it falls on November 11th. On November 11th, Orphan Sunday, well, what exactly does that mean? It's a day we pray that God will open the hearts of his people to see the need of the orphans and be willing to be the father to the fatherless. Starting next week, I'm going to be airing bonus episodes of my podcast and sharing the stories of adoptive families. Some adopted through foster care, some privately, and some overseas adoption. In these stories, you're going to hear the process of adoption, uh, the needs adoptive families have, and how you can serve the families. So you want to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any of these inspirational stories. I've already started recording this podcast, and I can tell you, these are amazing stories you don't want to miss. In researching for this podcast, I came across a story I want to share with you today. John and Erin. They actually live really close to me, but I hadn't heard of them until just yesterday. It turns out we actually have multiple mutual friends. John is a police officer, and Erin is a stay-at-home mom who homeschools her children. They had four biological children, but they felt that God wanted them to adopt, and they began looking at an orphanage in Nigeria, and they were matched with a five-year-old girl. So that started the whole process of saving money, because overseas adoptions are actually extremely expensive. For one thing, you have to travel to the orphanage. You have to stay there for a while while the adoption is approved. That means you can't work and you have to pay for accommodations. So the couple began saving money. In June, John and Aaron headed to Africa to meet their new daughter. After just two and a half weeks, the Nigerian paperwork was finished and their little girl was officially adopted. Her name was Favor Gloria Aaron, And she was officially part of the family. All that was left was for the government of Canada to put a stamp on her paperwork so that she could come to Canada. But then nothing happened. John ended up returning to Canada to get their children, bring them to Africa because the family had been apart for way too long. The family was then all in Africa, but still Canada would not approve her paperwork. I mean, they wouldn't even open it and look at it. Then Erin got sick. She actually got malaria and typhoid fever. So she was hospitalized and then she was forced to return to Canada. That left John and the children in Africa still waiting. With every day they wait, the bills just begin piling up. John hadn't worked since June. The credit cards are all completely maxed out and the money they had raised and saved for the adoption was completely used up. After three months, the Canadian Immigration Office had not even opened their paperwork. All they need was a stamp to say, yes, they can bring their daughter to Canada. John and Aaron are about to make a choice no parent should have to make. Return their child to the Nigerian orphanage. John has to go to work. There is no money left. James one twenty seven says that religion God finds pure is caring for widows and orphans in their distress. God doesn't call all of us to adopt, but he does call all of us to care for orphans. That means helping those who are adopting. This is a family that has stepped out in faith. And let's just be honest here. That's something most of us wouldn't be way too afraid to do. They've risked everything. And now it looks like they're going to lose everything. Imagine this is your child and you found out you have to leave your child behind in a Nigerian orphanage. Just think about that for a minute. And feel that pain and then do something. As a Christian family, we need to step up and be the miracle that this family needs. Our hearts actually need to break for this family. So maybe you're thinking, well, this little girl, okay, so this little girl has to go back to an orphanage for a little while. Is that really that big of a deal? I mean, she was already there for five years. The family can come and get her once her paperwork is finished. Let me explain to you exactly why this is so urgent. I am both an adoptee myself and an adoptive parent. The bonding between an adoptive parent and adoptee is very difficult. Many adoptive families struggle with their adopted children bonding with them. There's something called RAD, and that is when the child um, gets this disorder, they're not able to connect anymore. It's impossible really to connect with them after that. Not only will the child not bond with their family, but they'll also struggle with relationships in general. I have friends who have adopted children with RAD and their lives are extremely difficult, not only for the parents who have adopted them, but for the child who has this disorder. It's sad to see what the child would have been if they were able to form bonds. This family had three months to bond with their children and they're going to be forced to return their daughter to the orphanage. This does not simply mean their daughter will have to wait to come to Canada. This means the bonding process will be broken and the damage done might last forever. Please do what you can to help this family. I'm going to post a link in the show notes with a GoFundMe page so you can help support the family. Then contact your MP and tell them to do something. Why is it taking so long for the Canadian government to process FAVOR's paperwork? Well, they're a little backlogged right now. Thanks to tens of thousands that have crossed our border illegally. One little girl in an orphanage in Nigeria and her Canadian family just isn't a priority for the government because they're dealing with 14,125 illegal border crossings that happened just this summer. Our Prime Minister sent out a tweet that said, Welcome to Canada. And since then, we've had 30,000 people cross our border illegally. That's created a backlog for immigration. They're now 11 years behind. So if someone crosses the border illegally, they won't be dealt with for 11 years. So how long will it be for little favor? Why does all this matter? The illegal crossings here in Canada, the giant caravan headed to the States, why does all of this matter? Well, let's look at history. In 1939, Canada began to fight in the Second World War. By the time the war had ended, 1.1 million Canadians had served in the war. 44,000 had died, and 54,000 had been wounded. By the end of the war, Canada had the fourth largest air force and the fifth largest navy in the world. But what they didn't have was Canadians, or sovereignty. That's right. When I said 1.1 million Canadians have served in the war, that was not actually historically correct. Because there were no Canadian citizens at the time. Zero. But. The people living in Canada didn't want to be seen as British anymore. There was a rise of nationalism in the country. There was a growing cry to be called Canadian, not British. William Lyon Mackenzie King saw it was time for a change. The nationalist cry was getting louder every day. It was time Canada had Canadians. So he went to work on that. On January 1st, 1947, two years after the end of World War II, The Canadian Citizen Act was passed. Here's what the Act said. Residents of Canada could become citizens of Canada, regardless of where they were born. However, they would no longer be British citizens. They would have to choose, be Canadian or be British. If you were born in Canada, you would automatically be a Canadian citizen. And if you were born outside of Canada and your father was a Canadian, you were automatically Canadian. There were, however, some limitations. Immigrants would have to live in Canada for at least five years in order to apply for citizenship. And they would have to prove that during those five years, they had demonstrated good character and had learned either French or English. If an immigrant had fought alongside Canada in the war, they were automatically approved for citizenship and didn't have to wait five years. Now, in this act, there was also the ability to lose your citizenship. And here is how you could lose your citizenship. If, first of all, you became a citizen of another country. If you served in the armed forces of a country that was not an ally to Canada, you would lose your citizenship. If you were a citizen who was not born in Canada, you could lose your citizenship if you left Canada for more than six years. If you were caught showing loyalty to an enemy of Canada, if you did anything that showed disloyalty to Canada or the crown or the army. Other than the part where you were only a citizen born outside of the country if your father was a citizen, that part I disagree with, and I'm glad we updated it to say if your parent was a citizen. The rest of the act is kind of awesome and maybe needs to still be used today. Imagine how many problems we wouldn't have if we followed this. January the 3rd, 1947, Canada had its very first ever citizenship ceremony. 26 people became Canadian citizens. And the very first person sworn in was Prime Minister Mackenzie King. His Canadian citizenship number was 0001. So that's a cool trivia question for you. Who was the first ever Canadian citizen? Prime Minister Mackenzie King on January 3rd, 1947. So that year, 1947, Canadians became, well, Canadian. And over the years, many, many more have become Canadians by birth and by immigration. Canada has been a welcoming place. We have communities of Irish, Chinese, Arab, Ukraine, German, Dutch. Pretty much Canada is made up of people from all over the world who want to live by the Judeo-Christian values that made the West great. We've been a strong country that is proud of who we are, but we're not obnoxious about it. Since that first ceremony on January 3rd, 1947, our country has changed. We are sovereign. We don't see ourselves as British. We're proud of who we are, but that's changing. There's a threat over the whole world right now of movement to get rid of borders and in doing so, end the sovereignty of nations. Those who say they are nationalist are deemed racist and bigoted. Those who believe a country not only can but must have control of its borders are now keeping their voice quiet in order to not be called racist. In January of 2017, Donald Trump put a ban on a number of countries. No one from those countries could enter the United States for the next few months. His reason was this. Those countries' passports were no longer seen as valid because the country was not processing them correctly, and there was no way to vet the people coming in. Those countries also had a high number of terrorist activities. Those countries also happened to be predominantly Muslim. The media called the ban the Muslim ban. Most people blindly followed the media and did zero thinking for themselves. I was most disappointed to find Christians who jumped on this bandwagon saying anyone who agreed with Trump's temporary ban was not a good Christian. It was the call that you're not pro-life if you agreed with this ban. Okay, so brutally tearing a baby apart limb by limb and crushing their skull. Totally the same thing as not letting a person visit America for a few months. Okay. There's also a cry that Mary and Joseph are immigrants. So we must hate baby Jesus if we don't want to allow everyone to cross the border. I'm going to address this question of Christianity and borders in a little bit. Trudeau, of course, had to jump in and show that he was more enlightened than Trump. And at 4.20 p.m. on January 28th, 2017, in one tweet... Trudeau basically ended our sovereignty of the border. This is what he said. To those fleeing persecution, terror, and war, Canadians will welcome you regardless of your faith. Diversity is our strength. Hashtag welcome to Canada. And just like that, people from around the world headed to Canada. If you think I'm being overdramatic, here's an email from the Mexican government to the Canadian government. And it says, An official at the Mexican embassy... I am seeking official guidance and response from Ottawa on how to address refugee inquiries following all the publicity around the U.S. ban and some nationalities and our Prime Minister's tweet on welcoming refugees. Mexico wasn't the only one confused. Around the world, people began to ask, is Canada open now? Do they have the same open borders that Europe has? Since that tweet, over 30,000 people have crossed our border illegally in just one section of our border. It's a field at the end of Roxham Road, and that number grows every day. In fact, Roxham Road now has a building to help process the people crossing illegally. Already, we found over 900 people who were about to be deported from the United States have crossed into Canada, and we deported six of those people. We're paying for health care, schooling, and housing for all of those people. And before you start with, we should be helping them, a little reminder, those who come to Canada legally get none of that help. They don't get health care. They don't get any of that. Canadians, we need to ask ourselves the same questions we asked ourselves in 1947. What makes a Canadian? Is Canada a sovereign country? Do we as a country want to have the right to decide who can and cannot enter our country? Are we going to have open borders? We have to answer this because right now we are in an in-between stage that's making things almost impossible for people trying to come here legally. And we're making things incredibly easy for those who just walk in with no paperwork or vetting. We have to either close up our borders and take control or we have to release those who are in the waiting line to come here legally. What we can't do is continue with what we're doing right now. My vote is to bring back some of those rules from the Canadian Citizen Act. Of course, this story brings to mind the same questions Americans are asking themselves now as the caravan moves towards the country. What started out as a few hundred has reached into the thousands. Some say 7,000. Some are saying 14,000. It's actually unclear how large it is. What we do know is that it's growing and it's heading straight for the American border. They plan on forcing themselves inside the country and demanding entrance. Women and children are being sent to the front of the line, making it difficult to stop the caravan without hurting the most vulnerable. The men are in the back, which is the most cowardly thing to do. While there are women and children, the majority of the people are men in their 20s. When you see the news coverage, you see a lot of women and children. However, when you look at the drone footage, you'll see mostly all men. It's hard to even find any women or children. And there has been confirmed that there are men from Bangladesh who are in this group. And Bangladesh is a hotbed for terrorism. There are confirmed gang members and criminals. This is just the beginning, actually. Another caravan has already started and is starting to follow them. Trump has ordered the military to go to the border. What are they going to do? This is not going to end well for anyone. This is, of course, globalism. It's the idea that we need to end our borders. We need to have one world with no countries and one government ruling the world. The group calling themselves people with no borders. They're the ones funding and organizing these caravans. Where does this idea come from and what is the history behind it? Well, there's a push from the UN to control the world. And they're doing this through open borders and something called environmentalism. After the end of World War II, FDR looked at the Manhattan Project and realized that if the government controlled the scientists and the scientific community, the government would have a lot of control. So a paper was produced called Science, the Endless Frontier. The government began to pay for studies and pour money into the science community. And once the government was the primary funder of the science field, the government owned the science community. The government will give money to the studies that are going to produce what the government wants. The UN has already used this strategy. The UN, by the way, is anti-capitalism, anti-sovereignty, anti-Israel. The UN wants to control the governments, and they do this by creating a problem that is a global problem that all the countries must agree to solve. Although it is only the capitalist countries with Western ideologies that are forced to comply. If you've heard the phrase, think globally, act locally, this is actually a propaganda phrase invented by Rene Debo as a way to push the Agenda 21 into the mainstream of pop culture in Western civilization. The idea of Agenda 21 is to use environmentalism as a way to gain control of the world, but this is done through local municipalities. They are much easier to bribe. Do you find your local government, your township office, has so many regulations you can't keep up? The laws in your local township seem overbearingly controlling, and if these laws tried to get passed on a country scale, we would all freak out. But somehow we suck it up when done on the smallest local scale. But if every small local scale puts these regulations on its citizens, the citizens still all end up under control. To make these regulations, the UN had to release studies to prove the world was about to end. So the IPPC was created. It's an international organization that tells the world what to do to solve the emergency of global warming. But is there an emergency? In the last 100 years, our planet has warmed 9 tenths of 1 degree. Over the last 100 years. So how is the U.N. creating this emergency? Well, the U.N. has 32 computer models that are created by different countries that are in the U.N. and controlled by the U.N. 31 of these models have predicted the world will end because of global warming. One of these models has said everything is completely fine. 31 of these models have been disastrously wrong on everything they've predicted so far. You can see that from the comedy movie Inconvenient Truth. That's a movie that was made as a documentary, but is now a comedy since we've lived past all the ends of the worlds that were predicted. One model that's been extremely accurate. Interesting that one model is actually controlled by Russia. and That's kind of weird. The Russian model left something out of its programming. It left out the coding that said humans are the contributing factor to climate change. Because the other 31 models have humans as the reason for climate change, the more humans, the more human activity, the worse the future will be. You know, you've heard of it, your carbon footprint. That's where it comes from. Russia has no carbon footprint in its model. And yet it's the Russian model that's been predicting the most accurate changes in the climate. Still, the Russian model is ignored by the UN and it's the other 31 models that are used even though every prediction has been way off. Then in 2007, the American Supreme Court gave the EPA the right to create regulations if they can prove that there was an imminent threat to human life. And exactly 90 days after Obama came into power, the EPA used the 31 models from the UN to prove there was an imminent threat to human life. And then they began to impose regulations. Regulations that crippled the coal industry and sent factories overseas. The media will point to the fact that there are very few scientists who are saying anything different. That's because the government controls the scientists. If you say you don't believe in the UN global warming alerts, or you don't believe climate change is anything to worry about and not created by man, then you're a denier and there'll be no grants for you. No grants means no job. If you want to be a working scientist, you have to sign on to climate change, global warming propaganda, and you actually have to help create that propaganda. In 2015, the UN moved one giant step closer to world domination, the Paris Climate Accord. In this accord, countries could willingly sign on to the accord and make promises of what they would do. India made a promise that they would increase their admissions. China made a promise that they would increase their admissions. Western countries like Canada and United States, they would decrease their admissions, with, of course, regulation and taxes. But then the UN hit a giant bump in the road, a Trump-sized bump. Donald Trump won the election and said, we're out of that Paris climate accord. That is a bad deal. Canada is still in the deal, and that's why we're getting this new carbon tax. So we can stay in the Paris Climate Accord. That is completely useless. Here's the weird thing nobody actually wants to talk about. We've been putting more carbon in the air. But you have to remember, go back to grade 3 science class. That's actually plant food. And guess what? Our planet is actually more green today than it's ever been in the history of recorded plant life. In fact, it's getting 5% greener every year. We have more grass, and that means more food. We have less famines. Today is the best time in history to live. Actually, if we didn't have terrorism right now, we would have a fantastic planet. The energy that the UN is trying to force us to stop using has given us the most comfortable life we could ever imagine. Our poorest people today live better and longer than royalty did 200 years ago. We live better. We live longer today because of energy. But you're probably thinking about the storms we have. As I am recording this, there is a typhoon headed to some islands that will probably devastate those communities. Does global warming create these storms? No. We have to ask ourselves this question. Is weather getting worse? The answer is no. The weather is not getting worse. What is getting worse is the damage done from the weather. The reason there's so much more damage is that, well, we have more people. We have larger communities. We have more buildings. We have more things to be destroyed. The models are being used to create the illusion that storms are getting worse. You'll notice they range from the 1970s to 2002. The reason they don't go before 1970s or after 2002 is this. The graphs from the 1920s to today show that there's no change. There was, however, a curve where the crest of the curve went from 1970 to 2002. So what we are being shown is just one small part of the graph and then told the weather is getting worse. Here's the thing. If you live in Alaska, you're going to get snowstorms and lots of them. If you live in the hurricane coasts, you're going to get hurricanes. When I lived in Newfoundland, we got massive snowstorms. If you don't want your home to be destroyed by an earthquake, don't build on a fault line. And if you don't want your home destroyed by a hurricane, don't live on the hurricane coast. If you hate snow, don't move to Newfoundland. So I'll hear this. If I'm a Christian, I should sign on to the environmentalist platform because it's God's creation. And I should care about borders and we should let everyone come into our country who wants to come in. It's what I hear all the time. And as I said, I was going to address that now. Once again, I'm hearing that as a Christian, I have to believe in open borders. The picture of Jesus as a refugee, that's surfacing again. And I saw one tweet of the Israelites crossing the Red Sea with the caption, Hey, evangelicals, what's the difference? Well, for one, the Israelites were returning home. And for another thing, they were actually met with a wall. Maybe the United States should build a wall. And if the caravan blows a trumpet and the wall falls down, then I guess we know what God is thinking. If the wall stays up, then, well, hey, let's give it a try. I found this message by this guy named andre shines where he kind of answers this question now i have no idea where this pastor sits on any other theological topics so i'm not endorsing him however he does a great job here of explaining why as a christian he is also an advocate for borders and rule of law so listen to this clip
1: and i've even heard those in the mainstream media say certainly jesus would not have done that well I'm not here to give you a basic lesson in theology, but I will tell you that throughout the Judeo and Christian experience, there's always been something called borders. It has existed from the beginning until now. So when I hear that I'm being insensitive as a Christian because I want to block uh, the individuals from coming here that shouldn't be here, no, I'm being very Christian. It is the very scripture that I live by that teaches me to be responsible, to know who's coming in and out of my home, our borders, to watch for individuals that would bring some sort of dismay into my home. Well, my home is not just a physical place. My home is America. And I wanna know who's coming in and out of my home. I wanna know, do they have good intentions? Do they have bad intentions? And whatever those intentions are, I, as a leader, as a Christian, I have a right to know that. To know who's coming in and out of our home, that is more Christian than I think that most of us could probably ever admit. One of the things that I hear is, well, do you have any scripture? Well, I could take you back. If you had a couple hundred hours, we could go from Genesis to Revelation. If you are in the Torah, I could share with you. But let's just think of just a few. One of the scriptures that often come to mind is where uh, Paul, the St. Paul, he's writing to those that in Rome. And he says this, let everyone be subject to the higher authority. And for those that break the law, Paul went on to say, and I quote him, that we have a legal system in order to deal with them because they are not abiding by the law throughout. The mandate of scripture and you can find this theme throughout all scripture that has a judeo-christian perspective that god himself is the one who instituted boundaries so when an individual challenges you that you're not being christ-centered as a matter of fact not to have laws and abide by them is more anti-christ than it is christian
0: So I want to be careful to explain that as a Christian, I believe you can actually hold both views. You can believe we should welcome everyone in and love them and hope that they will have a chance to hear the gospel and be saved. You can also believe we should not let them in because we should be protecting our family and our country. Both of those views come from love and both can be held by a Christian. In my opinion, one of those views is pretty naive and immature and it's a position that's not well thought out. But I can say that it does come from a good place. I was reminded by some people this week that heaven has some pretty strict rules about who enters. Oh, everyone into heaven. But the Bible says heaven is a place only for the righteous. The Bible also says there's none righteous, not even one. We've all gone astray and done our own thing. The Bible says the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who could know it? So then who gets into heaven? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. He's the only way. What does that mean? It means we're separated from God through our sin. And God came to earth. Jesus is God. And because Jesus is God, he's holy and perfect. And even though he had never sinned, he gave up his life for us. He died and rose again. And in doing that, paid the price for our sin. Now, when we turn from our sin and turn to Jesus, we will be saved. There's a term we use for this. It's called justified. What does that mean? Imagine you found out that I pushed a little kid over and he fell to the ground. He would say, that action is bad. But if you found out that little kid was about to be run over by a truck, you would say, oh, that action is justified. You took off the label of bad and you put, gave my action the label of good my action was justified. God does that to us. He takes off our label of sinner and gives us the label of righteous. He justifies us. When does he do that? When we ask him to, when we come to him in humility and tell him we are sinners and we believe that Jesus is God and he alone can save us. When we ask him to save us from the wrath of God, he does save us. He justifies us. He takes our sin and gives us his righteousness. If that is something you've not done, do it today. I'm Loralee Siemens. See you next week.